Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. Today we have on with us Betty, and Betty is in Florida, so we're very excited to hear about how Florida's climate is so completely different than you know what we're traditionally used to in Maine and Climate Zone 6. So Betty, give us a little introduction, tell us who you are and uh, where you're at and how you uh, got started. Hi, my name is Betty, and I am currently situated in Southwest Florida, Fort Myers to be exact, which is about halfway between Miami and Tampa. Um, I'm an architect at BSSW Architects. We're located uh, in Fort Myers as well as Naples. And we are a firm uh, that's been practicing for about 40 years in Florida. And we deal mostly with uh, commercial design, uh, assisted living design, high schools, uh, libraries, government work. Uh, I got my start down in Miami. I was born and raised down in Miami, Homestead, Florida, and uh, started working on the East Coast. So from very, very early age, I had my exposure to the Florida climate, native Floridian. I know how it is when it rains. I know how humid it can get. And I also have been, had my quite, quite a few shares of hurricanes. So uh, I'm also familiar with that. <laughs> I'm sorry that you're familiar with that. <laughs> that would be one of those things where you'd, you'd wish you didn't know as much about that. But it really brings home the point that, you know, your climate zone is so totally different. Um, and yeah. so, as I mentioned earlier before we, you know, started recording is, you know, I went to Florida and we checked out um, this place called Babcock Ranch, which they have this big uh, solar electric field that runs this town and the development, um, which was fascinating to me because we're always looking for, you know, better ways to improve the way that we're providing power to, to, uh, areas. But, um, at the same time I'm walking through and going, Oh my goodness, these buildings are all built out of concrete and concrete is 9% of the world's emission. Like, is that the best way to do that? Um, so I'd love to hear uh, about that because obviously you get hurricanes and, it might very well be that that's the best way to, you know, to build in Florida. So what's your experience in, in building materials and things that are just necessary for your climate zone? Well, unfortunately, concrete is kind of the Florida way of life. And I don't know if it needs to be a mandatory way of life, but that's it's due to the fact of because of its strength and resiliency, not alone, but when we reinforce it with um, concrete and with steel uh, against hurricanes and also just the speed of construction and the fact that uh, labor is cheap for laying out block. You can be driving in a neighborhood and see them unloading CMU block uh, in the morning and by the time you get home at five o'clock in the afternoon you pretty much have a house set up. So in one day they can set up a 1,400, 1,600 square foot house uh, ready to go for reinforcing versus uh, stick framing, which will take a while to, bit of a while down here in Florida because of the lack of labor that specializes in that. Um, Unfortunately, also because of Hurricane Andrew, who came by in the 90s, our building codes were revamped because of the destruction that happened down in Miami and Homestead. And there was a very strong push for CMU block and for concrete. So that's been also ingrained in our minds uh, since the nineties that you want strong construction, you want concrete, you want uh, CMU. I see though uh, a trend going towards ICF which is a little bit more uh, lead friendly and environmentally friendly. And with the prices of that going down, I see a little bit more commercial wise and residential picking that up and you have just as much as hurricane resiliency as you would have had with CMU blocks. So that's a good step towards, uh, towards that type of construction. I think it just needs to be, an education that we need to educate the upcoming architects that we can build 
strong hurricane resistant construction and not use typically CMU. Um, Another trend is also we're trying to, we have a lot of concrete construction um, for concrete walls and concrete slabs. And we're trying to also add some admixtures that are a little bit more uh, environmentally friendly in our concrete, such as fly ash and uh, trying to get some lead involved with that as well. So I see a trend in Florida. It's a slow trend, but I see it uh, getting... Yeah, building science seems to be kind of a slow trend, you know, across the board. Um, I was really fascinated by... um, when I walked through the Babcock Ranch, they have different neighborhoods and they have different builders in different neighborhoods. And so, of course, you can go into a lot of these um, model homes and you can talk to the person, you know, who's the representative for the builder. And there was only one that even talked about lead and, you know, what yeah. that meant and, and doing better. So in this huge development, there was there was only one contractor who was really kind of pushing it. Um, and it was really interesting to see that they had, you know, signs on the walls um, that kind of talked about all of the different things. But um, in the long run, it seemed like the only thing they were really doing, uh, and maybe they were doing lighting, I didn't get too deep into it, but it seemed like the major impact they were having was spray foaming the roof. And I thought, but what about the concrete walls? You know, so I love the idea yeah. that ICFs maybe are, are making um, some kind of impact there. But um, the other thing that I worry about for in our climate, we typically only use concrete in basements. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in, in the foundation of a structure, but we have a lot of moisture in our ground. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly mm-hmm. not as much as you guys do. You have a significant moisture issue. You know, yes. another architect that, you know, we all follow on Entrepreneur Architect said you guys are kind of just living in this whole swamp and so swamp, learn, yeah. learn to be an architect in Florida. You first have to learn to deal with all the moisture, but um, you you said to me today, it's, I said, it's snowing here. You said it's 80 degrees here. Um, how do you deal with the moisture through the concrete? Cause it doesn't, it doesn't really stop. And then you're cooling the inside surface. And if the concrete itself doesn't have any insulation on it, won't you have moisture and condensation inside your structures? Well, it's interesting. Um, our life mantra always is if you're an architect in Florida is keep the moisture out. And, um, <laughs> uh, one thing we do is, uh, before we lay down the slab, we lay down a vapor barrier on the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So first thing we do is we lay that down on the ground to keep the, the moisture from coming up through the slab. We have a lot of, um, we tend to detail a lot because water is eventually going to hit the windows, the doors, the overhang. So what we try to do is kind of detail in a way to divert the water away from the building. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have, uh, we do a waterproofing layer and that tends to be um, either stucco, the stucco finish tends to be with the paint, a waterproofing layer for us. If mm-hmm. we don't do stucco, if we do some type of rain screen or if we do some type of paneling, we'll have a paint on waterproofing onto the block itself, but it's a lot of details. Um, You sit down and you basically will cut a section through the wall and kind of take apart and think like water and think from top to bottom, okay, the water's going to land on the roof. It's going to go down the front face of this wall. How am I going to detail this windowsill to divert the water away? So we tend to have a lot of um, flashing around our window sills, we tend to have window sills with edges protruding out to divert the water out. We tend to have a lot of um, coverage in our roofs. Um, uh, our practice tends to any kind of uh, door or window that's exposed to the elements needs to be covered. Okay. We we don't like to expose that to the water because especially items like storefront or automatic doors, that's going to leak. Whether you like it or not, you're going to get a leak into the building. So it's a lot of preventative practices to try to keep that moisture out. Um, It's funny. uh, A lot of mechanical engineers pretty much tell us don't open ever the windows (laughs) unless the, (laughs) unless there's like that, two or three weeks we have in the winter that our humidity drops 50%. We never tend to open the windows at all during 
the <laughs> summertime because that's just the humidity. The, the it's so saturated. The water, the condensation in the air that you you don't want to bring it into the into the um, structure. And um, going back a little bit to Babcock Ranch, an interesting thing you were saying about lead and lighting. Uh, we have new energy codes that came out in 2019, and it's funny you say that because um, if you follow our new energy codes for commercial and some residential, you're pretty much almost at LEED standards. They have upped the insulation values for roofing and for walls that we need to abide by at a minimum. They have uh, changed uh, the codes for lighting controls for we need to add occupancy sensors we need to make sure the lighting for the interior and exterior buildings are automated so um it's interesting you mentioned that we're almost pretty much at lead it's just that sometimes i don't know why lead sometimes falls by the wayside during the construction documents but from an energy standpoint we are tackling that problem that cooling problem that we have in florida yeah um, i think that's water really problem good. not so much but yeah. cooling. <laughs> yeah and, and i think that's really good um that your your codes are following up with what's so critically important you know in florida we find here in maine our codes are a little far behind you know we're trying to push for you know better buildings and it would just adopting you know a new energy code here um there are parts of the country where it seems like it's so important and in maybe it's the you know more densely populated areas uh like florida or california or new york city where they're like okay we have this issue we need to deal with it and it needs to just be a regulation where um you know in other parts they can do a little bit more like we've been doing it this way for 25 years and it's not part of the standard and i mean as we you know are shifting and moving towards building you know more efficiently um I think that that's great. And <clears throat> I said lead at energy uh, at Babcock Ranch, but I think it was actually Energy Star, which is a little bit, you know, easier to understand. That's a zero energy to, you know, 100 is yeah. a code built house. And so, you know, if they were at 40, you know, they were doing 60% better than your energy code, which is, which is great. Um, here we use a lot of cellulose, which I would think would be a terrible material for you guys based on the amount of, of moisture you have and i would think that it would be so much more important to do like you mentioned do details where you pull the air conditioning out of the attic like let's just run that all through the condition space you know all the ductwork all the ventilation mm -hmm. stuff you know through the condition space so you can cut down on you know sweating pipes and stuff so you have spray foam you have icf what are you typically seeing in your roof structures is it like a fiberglass or a rock sole or some material i'm not listening <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, residential, it tends to be, uh, unfortunately, like a blow-in or a bat insulation. Uh -huh. um, and it's a very, very, we, uh, residential, I believe it's about R19 or so that we have mm -hmm. to get up to. Commercial, we have to do, get up to a lot higher. They, we have to go up to R30. Yeah. So we do uh, a composite board insulation with composite boards. Sometimes we'll have the structure will be a metal deck. Mm -hmm. So we'll do add also like an insulated lightweight concrete on top of that to kind of add to that. We'll do a roofing membrane that'll be reflective. Uh, we tend to like the um, painted on or the fluid applied roofing membranes that has kind of a, a rubbery uh, rubbery feel to it. So it'll seal everything up a little bit better. You don't like TPO or anything like that, just to the fact that that just falls apart. Yeah, that was one of the, the really interesting things um, as I've been doing, talking to people in different climate zones, as I talked last week with a gentleman who was in Colorado. And, you know, it's great in the Northeast, we have a lot of natural materials and, you know, what we use here and we, we make a lot of wood, so we should be using wood and, you know, just the materials that we have available to us. But out in Colorado, he said, you know, if you want to talk about sustainability and durability and longevity, of our buildings like we have to talk about the fact that we're like 8,000 feet above sea level and you know so we have yeah. this major durability issue with any natural materials because their exposure to you know 
exposure to the sun where I would think that you guys have, um, you know, a similar issue where you just have a lot of exposure to, to water and moisture. I don't know how much it rains there. Um, it rains. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> um, I would say, unfortunately, uh, I would say probably right now in the winter, we have mm -hmm. our dry months and, mm -hmm. um, uh, May through November is 90% uh, of the time we have rain. Um, depends on our winters. We've had a particularly wet winter. So I would say from November to today, February, uh, I would say about 70, 60 to 70% of our days have been rain. So even, uh, even in winter we'll have rain, uh, it's a it's a big issue that we have to deal with. It's nothing that we cannot avoid. It's uh, something. It's a way of life, pretty much for us here. Covered walkways, uh, covered doorways, yeah. covered. I would windows. think that you're 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 doing larger overhangs and covering everything so that you can kind of take that yes. moisture and push it away from your building. But also in your summer months, you're probably using that for shading so that it doesn't get super hot in your buildings. Um, and I loved exactly. what you said earlier, and I'm going to make everybody listen to the part where you said, um, you know, your mechanical engineers basically say, don't ever open your windows because I'm a, I'm an anti-basement person, which if you go to Florida, you just don't expect to see basements. Your water table is pretty high. You just don't expect to see basements. So it's become a non-issue for you. In Maine, everybody wants a basement. And then for two or three weeks, it'll be hot here. And they all want to open their windows in the basement. And then they just have moisture and mold issues in the basement because they, they think, oh, we're drying it out. I'm like, but it's 100% humidity outside. And it's cool in the basement. Yeah. You're not drying yeah. anything out. You're just yeah. introducing a whole lot of moisture and so to to hear it said from a climate zone where you basically have that condition all the time is a reminder to people it's like hey go listen to this because they deal with it all the time so they know <laughs> it's interesting because um i did an experiment after he told me that i bought one of those little uh those little indicators that tell you the moisture mm -hmm. in the air and during the height of the summer, I turned my AC down as much as I could. And um, because it gets up to 100 and plus degrees with humidity, it's not going to get as cold as you want in your house. Even though you get it down to 65, your house is sure. not going to be 65. It'll be the best 75, 74. And I tell you, even constantly ACing it, I did a 24-hour day for a week. I couldn't get lower than 54% humidity yeah. in my house and that's with my door shut everything shut and not opening anything and keeping the ac on so imagine opening up everything and introducing even more moisture i absolutely agree with yeah. you on that um an interesting point you make about the shading we're currently doing a project in uh, pompano beach it's about a mile from the atlantic ocean full-blown exposure to sun and and water and um we we went to we started the design intent of it's a residential tower and there's balconies that we need to shade all the balconies just for coverage for rain and for coverage for sun and of course the residents would like as much glazing as you can because you would love that fabulous views of the ocean and and whatnot and when our energy um, calculations started to come through and our mechanical engineer started to do his calcs he was pretty much amazed that it, we had so much glazing in our building but the they weren't the loads weren't that high because we were shading <laughs> everything and <laughs> i'm like i'm amazed this, those are great you're shading everything you're making my work easier and i'm thinking yeah but yeah we're also keeping the rain out and and it's um, just a good detail and, uh, I mean, and you yeah, wonder yeah. you know as, as architects we wonder how do we get away from doing good details i mean sure in the 80s the energy was cheap and we sort of did whatever we wanted but um you know how is it not sustainable to cut down on the mechanical systems that you have in order to do this? Now, you know, keep, you're keeping the water out, you're keeping the sunlight out, you're reducing the mechanical system because they're able to, you know, to deal with it. That is just, I mean, that's huge. And those are things that like 
oh, shouldn't we all have known that? And I, I bet that you find a lot that people from out of Florida are coming to Florida designing and not understanding your climate. And then you end up with yes. some probably really interesting, uh, interesting ideas uh, on how they're not addressing it or they're putting in larger mechanical systems or, you know, they say, oh, you know, yes. it'll be fine. We'll just do this or that. Uh, and Yes, we we actually work with some consultants, and um, they they come to us because they are out of state. So they come to us for advice for building envelope, and they come to us for advice uh, for uh, hurricane resistance. And and it's interesting because they'll come to us with an intent and a design, and you see that you see a lot of glazing, not shaded. You see a lot of if it's a um, type of a master plan you see a lot of walkways that are not covered you see a lot of mechanical systems up on the roof exposed and um, I've always been told by engineers that if we cover the mechanical systems be it chiller towers or, or rooftop units you can extend the life of that unit 15 to 20 years in Florida because the sun just eats it up the sun destroys and everything you've seen them all so, over the place just exposed yeah it's like ah oh, that's the that's the longevity question that's the, you know, the materials question yeah. is all you have to do is cover it and sure it might have a little bit of upfront cost for you to build something that covers it the same with yes. building shading devices but if it has a major impact on the lifespan of that building you know um this is one of the somewhat tragedies that I think we have in the United States is we, we have a tendency to just like build for the short term versus, you know, you look at a lot of the, yes. the European cities, which is completely different lifestyle than we have here. But you look at a lot of European cities and they've got hundreds of years old buildings that they just maintain and care for. Like, you know, they, someone said, on the podcast that they had, uh, you know, they have a door and the store is a hundred years old and it's gone generation and generation and generation. And it's a wood door. And you'd expect this thing to just be rotten, falling apart, whatever. Mm -hmm. But somebody cared for it every year. They conditioned it. They did, you know, these things in it and it, and it lasted. And so I don't know when we kind of got out of this mindset of, of taking care of, or thinking about the, uh, you know, cheaper right now isn't cheaper in the long run. And if you're building a successful business and you're building a, uh, you know, a, a school or, or whatever, you know, they, they need to think about those costs over the next 30 years, you know, not just, I'm going to have to replace that thing, you know, every year for the, or every 10 years. And so I'm going to have three of them in the lifespan of, like, okay, that was $10,000 a unit and maybe it cost me $10,000 to to build the structure over top of it, but now it lasted 30 years and so I've saved $10,000. You know, it's just, it's those questions that, that, sure, there's a finite budget and you have X amount of dollars to spend and <laughs> that's how it works. But at the same time, maybe we need to be building a little bit less or changing the way we think about these things to to add some longevity to our building structures. And there can't be anything that's more sustainable than that. I agree. And it's, it, I've, I completely agree with what you said. I've always thought that there was been, I don't know where it was lost, but also just a lack of education and understanding and respect for the environment. If you take a look at um, growing up, I used to go to this, uh, wonderful historic house down in Miami called the Barnacle. It's got um, port wraparound porches and wide overhangs and just the design was uh, intended to understand the wind that came through Miami. So he took advantage of that and you would just open up the doors and the whole house can be cooled by the prevailing winds and the whole house is shaded and that was a house that was built in the early 1900s, late 1800s down in Miami. There's a few in Fort Myers that have that same understanding that when they came down there, they understood and respected the environment and built according to that. And then we kind of lost our way along the way with that. And we created these boxes that are not energy efficient and sometimes they're not understanding of what will happen if a storm goes through and 
and and it winds up to be more costly in the end. Yeah, because um, I think the other thing that people don't think about is what do you do with it when you have to take it down or it comes down in a storm? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a lot of that stuff after you have a hurricane, it's not usable afterwards. Like, where does all that trash and building materials and all of that stuff go when it yeah. comes down in a in a storm so you know you're building these pieces for for longevity that are going to last maybe they need a little repair work after a storm so anyway you know you have all this hurricane debris that we you know we then have to get rid of we have to recycle it we have to move it somewhere yes. and so you know that's you know, not only the fact that you have this pile of stuff that you have to get rid of but you have transportation you have man hours you have you know potential yes and and how do you guys deal with that when you have structures that are falling down well i'll tell you i've been through a few hurricanes uh major and minor and it's a lot a lot a lot a lot of dump trucks everywhere and so uh, you tend to have debris pile up in, in the front of your yard. In if the case the whole house collapses, then it'll there'll be a company that comes and takes all the debris, and then they'll find um, usually open pieces of land, and they'll literally create a brand new landfill. You'll be amazed in a few months. It'll be the size of a landfill that has been there for years and years and years, full of construction debris, and then. Then from there, they'll find a way to how to remove that out of the area or out of Florida. I honestly don't know. I should really look into where that goes after that. But it's also taxing on the infrastructure. It's taxing on the residents. Um, You're going to get at least a flat tire every single week because there's nails everywhere that fall off of trucks. So there that's that that issue plus all the trucks on all the roads they destroy the roads they tear up all the roads so there's that issue it's it's just a a major impact for just cleaning up uh the of course the hurricane is a massive impact on your local environment but just the cleanup itself takes months and months and months afterwards and and also the construction afterwards again dump trucks everywhere uh, construction everywhere and and you see um, that taxing still on the environment you it'll take probably a good 10 years for, for the whole area five to ten years for the whole area to recover how it used to be after all that is said and gone yeah so that's one of those life cycle analysis things that we don't talk about a lot as you know as architects and in the field of construction is you know okay this is a cheaper material but you know what are we doing to our environment and some people don't care you know about the environment they don't you know they're like i need this building i need it to be done i need to be done cheaply and i don't care if i need to replace the heating system every 10 years and in the case of a hurricane i've got you know insurance that'll cover replacing this building um but i feel like we should care you know i feel like we we should be involved in that and so i love the fact that your practice is is you know taking that into account and really working with you know hurricane proof materials and the way that you deal with it and thinking about water and moisture vapor and cutting down on you know the life cycle cost of the actual building and the units and things that are in it we also think about the components too like uh doors and windows we found some details in which if we move windows back into the space instead of making it up close towards the exterior moving it back a little bit we're able to waterproof that a little bit ease our details are a little bit easier to do and we keep the water out um for if we have sliding glass doors or swing doors if it's not covered we have to cover it but also um, we've done details in balconies in which we've kind of recess them bit into the slab so if water eventually does hit that slab you kind of creating a dam uh, between the exterior slab and the interior slab and keeping the water out and of course sloping it out towards the outside so we're also playing around with the components of the structure uh, to try to keep the water out yeah i think 
obviously Florida is, is a major humid water environment. And so that that's number one. I think, um, I'm not sure that enough people are taught in design school, how water and moisture vapor, um, goes through a structure. Uh, I say to a lot of people, I think it would be great if you, you know, you go out on a job site, maybe you have a year's worth of training and you, you know, hands on with these materials, you know, you guys have, have developed yeah. this really great thing where you say, you know, if we move this window in a little bit farther our, our air sealing and water sealing details will be better and it's like you know you had to learn that at some point and um that's yes. the other thing that you know we we briefly touched on is is training like how do we get more training how do we get it out there that we you know should be building better and how do we build better and so i love that you and i are both part of a, a community of architects where we've started to share information with each other because why are we reinventing the wheel it's the same for me, I love this idea of the pretty good house and building better and building till it economically doesn't make sense anymore. Um, but I don't build in Florida. And so I had somebody approach me because they loved my design philosophy, but they wanted to build on the East Coast of Florida. And I'm like, I'm not registered in Florida. I'm not sure I understand mm -hmm. all the building science implications of building in Florida. I'm like, maybe I can connect you with mm -hmm. somebody that would know some of these informations like let me reach out and see who's in florida and you know who's willing to to do some of these things because i don't know and so that's part of this podcast and reaching out to other individuals is the united states has seven or eight different climate zones and they're all completely different yeah. and even within those climate zones yeah. you might have wet or dry areas of those climate zones and it's like oh yeah. so fascinating so it's frustrating to me when someone will come up and say hey i found this plan set i really love it and i'm like that's a beautiful house you could build that in florida like this is maine and we've got 90 pounds per square foot of snow load on top of this like those two by six rafters which would be fine if you're shedding rain are not going to be enough to to hold that on and that's just a structural yes. issue but then it doesn't take into account that you know we have 7,500 heating degree days here. Like we heat nine months of the year. It's sort of a joke. You know, we have, we have a uh, heating season, we have mud season and we have road construction season. <laughs> I'm sure you have something similar. You have, you have cooling season, you have hurricane season and you have road construction season as well. <laughs> well, yeah, we have, we have, uh, yeah, we have rainy season, hurricane season, which coincides. We have, uh, highway season which almost seems like our highways are always under construction and we have about two days of winter <laughs> which winter is about 40 degrees for us <laughs> yeah i thought it was really funny because we visited my uh my husband's grandmother in florida um in october and it was hot it yes. was like you had a really warm October this year and all of the Floridians were like, we are ready for fall. We are tired yes. of this. Like we don't want it to be 90 degrees. You know, we came down from Maine, the leaves are starting to change colors. We're starting to wear our lightweight jackets. Cause for us, it wasn't that cold yet, but you know, we come down there and you get off the plane and it's like a hundred percent humidity and yes. 90 degrees. Like you just sweat cause you thought about it, you know, it hits <laughs> it you just, like a curtain. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and it's like, wow, you know, we took an hour and a half, two hour plane ride and we were in a completely different environment. Yep. And yep. that's a, something that I want to kind of impart on people, you know, who might stumble upon the podcast or whatever is that every climate zone is so totally different. Um, and I love having you on as well, um, because women are not represented in architecture and construction very well. Um, I think the last thing I saw from the AIA is only 17% of uh, architects are female and only 9% of contractors are women. So I love mm -hmm. having you on as well, because um, along with building better, I think we need to, you know, empower other other women to, you know, get into the construction field, because I'm sure you have a similar issue. But in Maine, we have a labor force issue, and there just aren't enough people doing yeah. anything. And I'm like, I, yeah. I don't care what you are, or who you are, like get into the trades. It's, it's great, you know, become an architect, become a contractor, do all of those things. So um, I was fascinated by Florida and I wanted to have you on no matter what, but then I was like, yay, more women. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, I appreciate it. I, and I do agree that we do need to um, start to uh, 
start to educate that you can be a woman, you can be an architect, you can get in the construction field if you want to and observe. And that's how I learned. I Every single chance I got, I tried to get into the field and just really get into the trenches and take a look at how they did that window. How did you do that door? How are you doing that reinforcing? And just by watching them is how you're going to learn, unfortunately. Um, uh, at school, they teach you how to design and they teach you um, design intent, but the construction base part of our profession we need to learn out into in the field and and only also by lessons learned uh, can you also learn how to improve yourself as well as reaching out to others who have a little bit more experience than you do in the field um, I tend to try to reach out to some envelope consultants when you run into an issue of how am I going to do this how is this going to be done properly um, never be afraid to reach out to somebody who knows a little bit more than you because in this, this profession, which I love, we're always learning something new, which yeah. I think is also a great thing. Yeah, I agree. We learn something new on every project. Um, we've talked about it in on the podcast and in the Pretty Good House and in the Pretty Good House webinars is, you know, that really is the best way to learn is to get out there, to meet other people, to see what they're doing, but also to build a team. So like you'll reach out to another envelope consultant because maybe you need, you know, some additional detail, something you haven't done before, something that a client is, you know, really specific about. You know, we have a client who has a uh, you know, an allergy to a lot of building materials. So it's like, oh mm. man, okay, well, what are we going to use in instead of this that we traditionally use all the time? And so, mm. you know, you reach out to the other people. It's sort of a joke here. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of the posts from Mike Mains on the uh, entrepreneur architect, but yes. um, he's a big guru here. And so it's sort of become the joke. We're like, hashtag ask Mike, because <laughs> he just has this vast amount of building science knowledge. And so when yes. I have a question, I'm like, oh man, uh, we're running a really high interior, you know, relative humidity. And like, I know where the dew point is, but like, how much am I pushing into my wall system? And this is the type of wall system I have. And it's, you know, it's fascinating. And we go through and we, and we consult with each other and we've created this team where we can reach out to other people. And that is how everybody learns. And you learn something new on every project. And hopefully you learn something new that went really, really well. And you're not learning something that was really a bad idea. Although we yes. <laughs> learn from really bad ideas. Um, but that sort of goes back to the architect plus builder model um, is that a lot of times architects aren't involved during construction. And I don't know if you find this as much in uh, commercial com construction as we do in residential, um, but sometimes you don't know when an idea didn't go well if you're not on the job site and that information doesn't get yeah. translated back to you. And so you can't learn it unless you're involved and out on the job site. Yeah. So always say, you know, you, you have to be on the hands job site. On. You gotta be in the hands field. On. You gotta be yep. hands on. That's how everybody learns. That's how you get better projects. That's how we figure out technology and we build better. Um, everything within our buildings for the most part is built in a factory, but our buildings are still built by hand on a job site. And it's like, what could we be building in a factory? Like how could we, you know, build and depending on the size of the scale, you know, in commercial world, that may never be a possibility. I mean, we're talking cranes and huge pieces of steel and concrete, but at the same time in the residential world is why can't we have kit houses that are climate specific that get put up in, you know, an area. Um, or for you, I don't even know if a kit house would work because they literally can build a block house in a day. I mean, that is, that's a huge, huge thing for the building. I mean, it's how Florida is expanding exponentially is, you know, you build a house in a day. I mean, obviously you don't build the whole house, but you can build the structure of a house in a whole day. Like, wow. So. I've been told recently, I think the average amount of people moving into Florida per day averaged out in 2019 to about 800 people per day. Wow. That's it. So your population growth is, is growing. It's crazy. We have construction everywhere. It's crazy. And a, a, a residential home uh, in a suburb, 1,700 square feet, 2,000 square feet will be built from the ground up in about four or five months. Yeah. From beginning to end with landscape and with finishes and everything ready to move in, which is crazy. Yeah. It's crazy how fast that is. 
It is crazy how fast that is. Um, you know, and here we can only achieve that usually if we have some kind of panelization. Our walls were built in the factory or something was built in, you know, in the factory. And and you've really figured out how to do that for your environment. And I think that there are other climate zones who can figure out how how to do that. You know, a block is not made on site. You know, a block is made somewhere else. It's shipped there and they put them together like tiny little components. And, you know, I, I love to see us moving in that, you know, in that direction, plus a little bit of education, which then goes through and talks to people about how is this moisture in here? Like that house, maybe it needed to have wider overhangs so that you pushed the water a little bit farther away from the structure, you know, especially if you have a site that has poor drainage or there, there are so many things that come into play with that. So new FEMA maps or flood maps are rolling out around here. So that's affecting our building as well. Uh, recently, last year, we had to raise all our base flood elevations a foot because they're taking into account flooding due to storms coming through. But I think they're also taking into account rising sea levels. And Miami is getting affected by that right now. Um, I don't know if you've seen the news lately with Miami, but a lot of the older areas and sewer systems and septic systems are getting flooded by rising groundwater. And they're having a big issue with that. And on our end, on the West Coast, FEMA has rolled out new maps that's telling us we have to raise all our base flood elevation uh, a foot. And for example, if you are uh, falling under an assistant living category or if you're falling under um, an institutional category, healthcare, uh, they want minimum, I believe, 12 feet flood elevation for if you're going to be staying in place, if you're going to um, do refuge in place, stay in place, shelter during the storm, you got to be minimum 12 feet off of base flood elevation. So we're also elevating our buildings really high and anticipating that, anticipating water coming through and also anticipating uh, uh, seas rising. That also adds a whole nother added level of challenge, though, especially for staying in place and assisted living. And, you know, Florida, your 800 people that are moving into the state of Florida, a lot of them are retirees. Yes. And so now being 12 feet above the base flood elevation means that everybody is basically a flight above, you know, ground level. And so it's like you're, you're now you're adding, you know, new mechanical systems to assist people because we think here, you know, everybody wants a first floor bedroom because they're not going to want to go up the stairs. And yet you're moving to Florida and you can't have a first floor bedroom because none of your house is at ground level, um, which is important because sea levels are rising and Florida or Florida is sinking, whichever way you'd like to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sea levels are rising. And so you have to prepare for that as this future. It's leading to interesting design because if you're thinking about a community that is going to be um, providing a lot of homes for assistant living, um, uh, if we combine units together in one building, we're kind of thinking more of maybe putting parking on the ground floor, mm -hmm. cover your parking, and that frees up our land a little bit to yeah. to maybe landscape it a little bit better, or maybe to create, maybe we don't have to chop down as much as that preserve that we need to, or maybe we don't need to intrude into certain areas and kind of try to create a more sustainable landscape and habitat by making our footprint a little bit smaller. So it's, it's getting to be an interesting design obstacle, but something that I kind of welcome. Yeah, that is really interesting. You bring up a really great point is that 800 people, you know, coming in all the time, you know, there's a huge surge in population is, and maybe you know the answer to this and maybe you don't, it's just something like, out of curiosity came up and is, you know, are you seeing a lot of changes in your habitats and your ecological systems? Like here in Maine, we have seawaters warming. So we're starting to see, you know, everybody knows Maine lobster, but so we're starting to see a change in our sea life and, you know, it's getting harder and harder because the ocean waters are warming. You're covering so much of your ground. Are you, are you losing habitats and, and, we are. I don't know if you ever heard of the issues Florida's having with red tide and oh, yeah. uh, the algae. Well, the, from 
um, probably much mid-state down. Um, we are originally many, 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 many years ago, uh, Everglades. All of Florida, south of Lake Okeechobee is pretty much underwater. We're a natural Everglades habitat. There's only a few places that are above water in Florida, and that's uh, pretty much South Miami area. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else is underwater. So um, because of all the building, there's a, an area around Lake Okeechobee in which they created a dam and um, that dam was also built many years ago for when sugar farming and the farming industry began in the middle of the state prior to um, the boom that we have now and the, the, the cities that we have now. And um, when it rains a lot, that lake starts to overfill. And when that happens is they, re- they open up the dam and all that water goes down the natural rivers of the lake and those uh, as that water proceeds to go down the rivers through the state of Florida it picks up everything that is been saturated in the groundwater in the lakes along the way a lot of fertilizing people who naturally fertilize their lawns with chemicals or with um, um, fertilizer uh, any th- anything, any kind of chemical that goes into the ground, that water picks up. So that water picks it up, it starts pulling it across the whole state, uh, west and east, and it dumps into the Gulf of Mexico and it dumps into the Atlantic Ocean. And as a result of those chemicals that are in the water, it's caused this algae to start going nuts and go crow crazy. And it's growing like it's algae on steroids. And what happens is when the algae starts to overgrow like that, it starts to suck all the oxygen out of the water and the fish start to die. So we have a massively bad uh, issue with it is called red uh, algae, red tide. And what happens is that red tide now is this big glop of algae that floats in the, in, uh, near our Gulf Coast or near our Atlantic Ocean. And once it starts to situate itself over a coral reef area, it'll kill everything that's in, on top of it because there's no oxygen in the air. And as a result of that, Unfortunately, especially when it starts to rain a lot in the summertime, there's an overwhelming stench of dead fish everywhere. And also, because it's a plant and it blooms, it flies in the air. And there's a lot of respiratory issues now that are happening. A lot of doctors are seeing more respiratory issues coinciding when the red tide is in full bloom because people are really allergic to it, especially people who have uh, lung issues or asthma issues or allergy issues. So unfortunately, this is something that the state of Florida now is, is recognizing a little too late, but now we're starting to try to get some laws and legislatures in place to kind of control this algae boom and to control what we're putting into our ground and when we're releasing this water into the Everglades and into our Gulf shores. We don't seem to talk about at all ever either is, is water. What's in our groundwater? You know, we have to, to drink this water. If we have to desalinate ocean water to drink it, we're going to be, you know, hard pressed. So yeah, taking care of, taking care of the water that we do have, or, you know, when I was, discussing with Lance in Colorado is that they just don't have any water, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they're talking about zero scaping and planting, you know, environments that are drought tolerant that don't need to be watered. And to me, it's crazy. Like you water your lawn. That seems nuts. Like don't plant a lawn if you have to water it, you know, in a location. Like if you have to water it for at first, when you first, you know, plant it so that it actually grows. That's one thing. But if you have to continue to water it, it wasn't meant to be there in the first place. <laughs> yeah, here in South Florida, we're because of all these issues, we, they have water restrictions now. Yeah. They also have fertilizing restrictions now. Once rainy season comes in, there's some cities that restrict you fertilizing uh, as much during, I wish you, we can just 
get rid of all the chemicals and kind of do it, it right? natural. Yeah, but <laughs> make at it least difficult to get it. Yeah, but at least they're they're taking steps and yeah. and trying to prevent the, all that to go into our groundwater. So because we we have limestone pretty much, it's sand and limestone. So it's a perfect filter for it to filter down into our water system. So, well, I know you're busy and I really appreciate you coming on today and talking to me. I could probably talk to you all day because it's fascinating to me, Florida and just warm cultures and how you completely have a different way of, of building and detailing and interesting how you kind of end up places. I grew up in Pennsylvania my husband was from Maine. We flipped a coin, we moved to Maine. And so oh. when I moved here, uh, it, it was a whole new, like, okay, I'm going to be an architect. What do I need to know? What does Maine need? What's really important? What's natural here? You know, and so that was my philosophy of, of kind of getting into it. And, um, it's been a really interesting journey. And then now talking to people and, you know, my idea of sustainability and what works for Maine, is not something that you can blanket approach the whole, the whole country with. Um, Passive House in Germany works really well because Germany has sort of one climate zone. But in the United States, it's totally different everywhere. So um, it was really great to talk to you. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today. No, not a problem. And I love talking to you. I don't mind coming back on another great. day and talking to you. We could talk more about hurricane and winds. And I would I love, love to learn more about Maine as well, because I, I love that we are collaborating and I love in this age of technology that we have the ability to collaborate through Facebook, through podcasts, through vlogs, because it, it also, I, I love to learn about other climates. If you plop me in the middle of the main, I wouldn't think I would know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> You've been thinking it's cold. I would love to have you on again. There's so many more things that we could talk about in the world of, of building and performance and wind and hurricanes and Maine and snowstorms and nor'easters and, you know, so much to talk about. So um, I appreciate it. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for tuning in this month on the podcast. We've had a bunch of great guests from all different climate zones across the United States. So it's been really interesting for me to learn about different climate zones and how they take those approaches. We actually have a couple more great guests that'll be on over the next couple of weeks as we move on with the Pretty Good House and some other topics like team. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a comment on iTunes or leave us a comment on the website. You can listen to it at www.matramarch.com slash the dash podcast, or always send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. I'd love to hear what you think, what you'd like me to change. I'm always open to ideas that you want to hear about on the podcast. So reach out. Have an awesome week, year, weekend, and we'll see you again in March.